Today's episode of the Scaling Up H2O podcast is proudly sponsored by me. Hey, Scaling Up Nation, Trace Blackmore here. I am so excited that we have a booth at the Association of Water Technologies annual convention. Of course, this year it is a virtual booth, but folks, we've got a little bit of something for everybody. So if you know somebody that doesn't know about this podcast, how do you not know about this podcast? But if you do, send them over to our booth. We're gonna have some information for them so they can subscribe to the podcast and have dozens of reasons why they need to subscribe to the podcast. If you are a member of the Scaling Up Nation, and that is you because you're listening to this, we are going to have some information for you so you can get a little bit more out of being a member. We're also going to have lots of information about the Rising Tide Mastermind. I know I talk a lot about that on the show. You're going to learn more about the Rising Tide Mastermind. So stop by for that. And if you have a product or service that you think will work well with the Scaling Up H2O podcast, we've got some information for you about that as well. So please stop by and see us at the Association of Water Technologies Virtual Exhibit Hall. We've got something for everybody. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I am everybody's favorite Scaling Up podcast host, Trace Blackmore, CWT, Lead AP, and some other little initials that I have after my name. And as far as I know, I am the only host to this podcast. And as you know, it has become one of my favorite things to do to talk to you each and every week through the magic of the internet, through this podcast, so we can all do a little bit more to become better water treaters. And so many of you have called in to me either on the voicemail feature on our scalinguph2o.com website, or you have sent me an email, or have you used one of the other features that's on our website to let me know that this podcast is doing that very thing for you. It is moving you further as a better water treater. And folks, I love it when you tell me that. I know that I am doing the right thing with the messages that I have, with the podcast that we have, with all of those things. Thank you for that. And of course, I normally hear so much of that when we go to the AWT annual convention each and every year. And unfortunately, we are not going to be able to do that in person, but it's okay. We have a virtual concept, and that virtual concept is going to allow us to see every single paper I mentioned in the past. That's one of the hardest things for me at a convention is to realize how am I going to see two papers at once? Of course, you can't. The best you can do is divide and conquer with some of your friends. Well, this year, you don't have to do that. I will say a lot of the feedback that I've been getting is people are going to be missing the networking fashion. And folks, there's going to be some networking within the platform that AWT chose but the fine people here on the Scaling Up H2O team, they have come up with a solution, and it is a live event right after each and every day of the convention. You want to get involved with that, and you are personally invited from yours truly, Trace Blackmore. In fact, tell a friend. You can invite them. We can host as many people as show up. 
Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang, and we are going to be hanging out at the end of every day of the AWT convention. There's going to be networking opportunities. There's going to be opportunities for you to ask questions about papers you saw. There's going to be opportunities about how you are going to shift next year into high gear. All of these things at scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang. And it, of course, is totally free. So again, that's going to be each and every day. As soon as the convention concludes, we can log on to that. And then the following week is Industrial Water Week. And we celebrate this each and every year. Every single day, we are going to be celebrating another part of industrial water treatment. Monday, we'll do pre-treatment. Tuesday, boilers. Wednesday, cooling. Thursday, wastewater. And Friday, we'll wrap it up in careers. We've got a whole bunch of activities in store for you. We are going to be hashtagging IWW20, all your pictures, all the things you're doing, all the activities that you are completing from this podcast, you're going to hashtag there so we can all share in the excitement. And folks, we're just going to have fun. We're going to have fun at this year's AWT convention. We're going to have fun on the after hours hang, and we're going to have fun the entire week after for Industrial Water Week. Well, this week is a Pinks and Blues episode. And for those of you that have not listened before and you're wondering what the heck is a Pink and Blue, well, that's what people that have been in the industry for an extremely long time call running their test. And somehow or another, I kind of adopted that phrase that when I'm doing a show that's just between you and me, I may be answering your questions. I've called it Pinks and Blues. So today's Pinks and Blues episode is going to be primarily, why do your pinks turn pink? Why do your blues turn blue? What happens if the pinks don't turn pink or the blues don't turn blue? And all the things that can happen in between. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the most common tests that you are running, and we're just going to try to get to understand those tests a little bit better. Now, a lot of these questions have come in from the Scaling Up mailbag, where people have written in to say that they had an issue with something or another with one of those tests. And with that, we are going to use those questions to make an entire show so you have a better understanding about your test kit. And folks, I have to be the one to tell you this. Knowing a procedure by itself does not mean you truly understand the test that you are running. Now, if you're just starting out in this industry, there is nothing wrong with getting to the point where you memorize all of your tests. And folks, if you are looking at cards and instructions to run your test, you don't know your test well enough. As a professional water treater, you need to know the procedures of your test. So if you're still working on that, use the rest of this episode as motivation to where you need to be. However, if you've been in this industry for several years and you're still using your procedures or you don't know why your tests work, you don't know the most common interferes with your tests, you don't know the most common mistakes, please use this as an opportunity for you to learn your tests better. 
So here are some basics that you need to know for each and every test. You need to know what the test procedures are. You need to know why they work. What is the reaction that's taking place when you add reagent A to reagent B to reagent C? And if you know that, and you know a little bit of chemistry, you can anticipate what the interferers are going to be. Now, if you don't know chemistry, that is no excuse not to know that information. Talk to somebody who does. Learn the most about your tests that you can, because again, your tests are your best tool for you to know what's going on right there inside your system so you can use all of your knowledge as an industrial water treater to make the changes that need to happen. Now, as far as procedures, don't just know one way to run a test. Know how to change the sample size. We're gonna talk a little bit about that later. I'll give you some calculations on how you can add that to your procedures. But folks also know if you change your sample size, especially if you're doing it with a dilution, you might be able to dilute out some of your interferers. Know which species your test is going to give you its result in. For example, maybe you're running a halogen test and you're looking for chlorine and or the test is looking for chlorine and now it's you need to convert that into bromine. Do you know how to do that? Folks, that's pretty simple. It's just a multiplier based on the atomic weight of one species to another. You just have to multiply that through. We're going to talk a little bit about that on this show. Uh, above all else, make sure you have clean testware. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with out in the field where they have hired me for my consulting services. And one of the first things I see is a dirty test kit. They have not cleaned their glassware, their plasticware. And I know a lot of us are using plastic in our test kit because we might have food plants. We can't take glass in. Well, with plastic, it is going to need to be replaced more often. It's going to scratch more easily, and that means we have to replace it more often. Folks, we have to be cleaning all of this stuff because we might not just be testing what is in our sample right now. It might be from a few tests ago if we are not properly cleaning that. And then, of course, it goes without saying you have to measure accurately. If your sample calls for 25 mLs and you're at 24 or you're at 26, well, folks, you're already starting the game with some error. And look, there are so many things out there in the mechanical room. There's so many distractions out there. There's so many things that can get into our test at work as an interferer. Start your test as precisely as you can so we can minimize the known errors that we can take care of. Trust me, nature will throw some extra ones in there just to make your job a little bit more interesting. We do not need to help that. All right, so I'm just going to pull it right out of the bag first. The test that we all love to hate, and that is our chloride test. And this method I'm talking about is the silver nitrate method. I think we all use this at one point or another. And we a lot of times use this to figure out how many non-scaling chloride ions are, are in the system before 
we start, so the makeup water, and then how many have concentrated up so we can figure out what our concentration ratio is. I truly believe that the more you understand a test and how it works, the better you understand that test. So here is the method in which the chloride test works. Silver ions in the titrant react with chloride in the sample to form a silver chloride precipitant. After the chloride is in the form of silver chloride, silver ions then react with the chromate indicator that you put in, the actual chromate in that indicator, to form a silver chromate precipitant. The silver chromate precipitant has an orange or red-brown color, which gives you the endpoint of that test. Now, we're going from a yellow test to a sort of a brick red. And folks, we're looking at precipitant, which means it's kind of a nasty test. And I know people don't like it because somebody's red might be different than somebody else's red. And a lot of times when we're running tests back to back with somebody else, we're not getting the same answer. So here's the first thing I wanna talk about this test with is you yourself need to be consistent. And with all of your tests, it's better to be consistently wrong than it is to be all over the map. So if you have not done this, go into your places of business and look at all the tests that you run and talk to everybody to see where everybody's endpoints are. Actually run the test together. Compare why one might have more yellow and the other one might have more red, especially since it's the exact same sample. For those of you that own a water treatment company out there, I call those testing rodeos. I don't know why, I just always do. And we'll just mix up a known sample where volumetrically and by weight, I know how much is in that sample and we see how close people get to detecting that with their tests. And I'll tell you, when you turn that into an educational process, people will leave that knowing so much more about their test. Now, a lot of people ask, does it matter if I'm using a drop bottle? Does it matter if I'm using a digital titrator? Well, folks, the answer is no. The real answer is be consistent with whatever it is that you are using. I prefer to use a digital titrator for so many reasons. One, they are a lot more accurate and they also allow me to just pay attention to the color and I don't have to worry about counting anything. So they just take something out of the equation. And I gotta tell you, they look a lot cooler than just having a drop bottle when you bring out a digital titrator in front of your customer. So with all of that, it doesn't matter what you're using as long as you are consistent. Now, typically the way that this test goes is you are going to add the chromate indicator. It's going to turn yellow. And then you are going to add either dropwise or by turning your digital titrator, the silver nitrate, and that is going to create the reaction that we just talked about. And now you have to be very, very accurate on getting the right result. Again, being consistent is more important than being right, but try to do what I said with those testing rodeos and make sure that you try to get as right as possible. 
Now, for those of you that are wondering about the interferers with this test, there are a lot of interferers with this test. So first off, if you are using sodium hypochlorite, that is going to throw your numbers off immediately if you are trying to get concentration ratio. You are adding chloride and you're testing for chloride. So right there, it's not going to allow you to do that. Also, high chlorine will throw this test off. High bromide will throw this test off. If you have iodide in your system, it will throw it off. If you have iron in your system, it will throw that off. A lot of us are using orthophosphate as a corrosion inhibitor. Well, guess what? That is also an interferer. And then the ideal pH range for this test is two to seven. So if we have a very caustic sample, it doesn't like that either. Folks, there's just so much stuff that interferes with this test. And you might be wondering where I'm getting this information from. There is a free resource out there. Well, first off, your best free resource is who you buy your reagents from. There's so many wonderful companies out there that have done a great job of making it easy for us industrial water treaters to do our tests. And they have provided great procedures color procedures. They've color-coded their caps so we can easily see what we're reaching for without having to take a bunch of bottles out. They know how their tests work best. So use them as a resource. Whoever your test kit supplier is, call them, let them know that you're having this issue, and they will tell you things that you did not even know to ask. So that's number one. The other thing is the Hawk Water Analysis Handbook. Now, the procedures might be a little bit different from the procedures that you are using in your specific test, but the methods all come from the same standard. And what Hawk has done is they have put their procedure on there. They put ways to dilute it. They have put the most common interferers with there. If there are different species that you need to multiply to, for example, with the chloride test, if you have not listened to episode 116, that was another Pinks and Blues episode, and that was when Eric Russo called in and wanted to specifically know how he could find system volume, and I did a whole show on system volume. Well, if you are adding sodium chloride to find a system volume and you use a chloride test, you're not testing for the entire substance that you put into the system to find out what the volume is. And of course, if you're wondering what that procedure is, you can go to episode 116. I explain all about that. But with that, if you are using a chloride test and you are putting sodium chloride in, you now need to do a multiplier. So to get chloride to sodium chloride, you would just simply multiply your answer by 1.65. Real simple, then you can run the calculation that I talk about in episode 116. If you're ever in doubt of any of that, you can go to the Hawk Water Analysis Handbook to find out about that test. So I started off with the chloride test because we all know about it. We all have issues with it. But understanding your test, it goes to show that you can now run that test better because you know what the issues are with that specific test. Now, before I leave the chloride test, I will mention one more method, and it is the mercuric nitrate method. 
And the mercuric nitrate method works by the mercuric ions and the titrant react with the chloride in the sample to form mercuric chloride. After all the chloride is in the form of mercuric chloride, the mercuric ions then react with the indicator that you put in to form a pinkish purple color, which is the endpoint of this test. Now, I will tell you, this test is a lot more accurate, but what is it called? Mercuric nitrate. Folks, you're putting mercury in your test kit so for those of you that have ever heard of Mad Hatter's disease, that's actually mercury poisoning. They used to use mercury in making hats. So unless you don't want to turn out like that, or you can be very, very, very safe using that in your test kit, that might be an alternate that you can use. Folks, I said be safe with this test. Treat every test that way. Put your safety glasses on. Put your gloves on. Anything that you need to keep a barrier from whatever you are running your test with from your body, you need to do that. If you respect everything that you run, you will be able to run them for a very long time. Now, I'm not recommending that you use the mercury method of the chloride test kit. I just wanted to let you know that it is a more accurate endpoint. And with that, you have different procedures for each and every test that you run. So if you are not aware of a different type of reagent for the test that you're running and you're having an issue with it, research that. See if there's another method available out there that will get you past your issue. So many people just run the test that they were taught 10, 12 years ago and they never think about it again. Well, folks, there might be a better mousetrap out there. So another very common test that we will run is alkalinity. And folks, there are different alkalinities out there. Between 4.3 and 8.3 is where our bicarbonate alkalinity is. Between 8.3 and 10.3 is where our carbonate alkalinity lives. And above 10.3 is where our hydroxyl alkalinity lives. Now, I eventually will do an alkalinity show where I break all those down. However, I'm going to do a little bit for you today with your tests. So be ready for that. Now, typically, we will do like a total alkalinity, and that will include a phenolphthalein indicator and a bromyl cresyl green methyl red indicator solution. Those two indicators give us a really good endpoint. Phenolphthalein knows to turn pink at an 8.3 or above. As soon as it hits that 8.3, it will start to become clear. And bromyl cresyl green methyl red will be green until it hits a pH of about 4.3, and then it will turn red. And that, of course, is how we measure carbonate alkalinity with the phenolphthalein how we measure our bicarbonate alkalinity with our bromyl cresyl green methyl red. So pH is so important when we talk about alkalinity. And folks, I did a pH show back on episode 84. I talked about pH. I talked about the importance of pH. Well, essentially, alkalinities can only exist at particular pHs. So go back and give that show a listen. And I think that will even help you more with the alkalinity tests. 
So the first thing you should do when you're doing an alkalinity test is you should take your pH. That's going to tell you which alkalinities you are going to look for. Of course, then you're going to add your measured amount of sample. You're going to add your phenol phthalene. And folks, there's powdered phenol phthalenes out there. There's some in pillow packets that Hawk offers. I really like liquid phenol phthalene. It never goes bad. It doesn't clump together. I think after the whatever happens to whoever inhabits the earth after humans are here, they're still going to have plenty of phenol phthalene left from us around. There's just nothing that goes wrong with it. So with that, you put your drops of phenol phthalene in. It should turn pink if your pH is above 8.3. By the way, that's a great way to calibrate your meter. If your meter does not agree with your phenol phthalene, your meter is the one that is lying. Phenol phthalene does not know how to lie. Also, with color indicators on your test, feel free to add as much as you like. If it is not as pink as you need to see a clear color change, then add some more. It's not going to hurt your test. Now, if you add a couple mils of it, it might dilute your sample. But if you add a few more drops of that, that is not going to do anything but give you a crisper color change. You can do that with all the reagents in your alkalinity test. And pretty much any color indicators that you have within other tests, feel free to do that. But if you have a question, give the people that manufacture your test kit a call and they can tell you all about that. So then you're gonna titrate with acid. What does acid do? Acid suppresses the pH. And when the pH gets to one of those pH levels that I just mentioned, you're going to get your color changes. Now the acid that is in your test kit is specially calibrated. So we can figure out how many drops it takes to turn from one color to another, and that will equate straight to the alkalinity species that you are looking for. Now, the cool thing about titrations is you can change your sample size based on what you know about the initial procedure and then what the initial drop count size is. You can manipulate that any way you wish. All right, so in order to manipulate your titration sample size, you need to know four things. You need to know what your new sample volume is going to be. You need to know what your original sample volume is, so what is actually in the procedure, what the standard drop count from that original procedure was, and then you're going to solve to figure out what your new drop count in that new sample size is going to be. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to take the standard drop count per drop and you're going to divide that by two numbers. The first one is the new volume size divided by the original volume size. So once you do that, you will find out what the actual new drop count is for that new sample size. Folks, that is great with the chloride test because you can do that to get some of those interferers out that we just talked about. But with the alkalinity test, you can get as close as you need to, depending on what you are trying to figure out. And you don't have to order another test. You can actually calibrate your specific titrant test for whatever size is most appropriate for you. Now, a great example of that is the nitrite test. Nitrite, I think, is one drop equals 50. Well, is that enough 
for you to be accurate. And most people say, hey, that's plenty accurate for me, so you don't need to do this. But maybe you want to turn that sample size a little bit bigger and bring down the effect that the titrant has on that larger sample size so now you can be a little bit more accurate. So if it's a five mil original sample size and the drop count was 50 per drop, if you brought that up to a 10 mil sample, that's going to mean that you now reduce the power that that titrant has over that larger volume. And now the drop count size is going to be 25 parts per million. So just know that you can manipulate your test all day long. You don't have to have a special test kit for that. So here's something that people always ask me about when they're getting ready to take their certified water technologist examination. And what it is, it's alkalinity relationships. Folks, if you understand alkalinity, you will understand how your products are able to work because certain inhibitors will not work without the existence of particular alkalinities. That is another show, but I know people that I've consulted with and I say, you have the wrong product here and they're saying, how on earth do you know that? Well, it's simple. It's because I understand alkalinity relationships. Well, today I'm going to talk about alkalinity relationships when it comes to understanding your alkalinity tests. So let's just say your p-alkalinity, the results you got from your phenolphthalein is zero. Well, we already know that that means it's below 8.3 and what exists above 8.3. Well, that's our hydroxyl alkalinity. That's our carbon alkalinity. So that means that entire test result is all going to be bicarbonate alkalinity because that's what exists below that 8.3 pH. So that's an alkalinity relationship. So if we just look at our test and understanding what species we have, let's say the p-alkalinity equals our total alkalinity. So that means every bit of alkalinity we have is in the high pH range above 10.3, and that means that we have all hydroxyl alkalinity. Well, what if our p-alkalinity is less than one half of the total alkalinity? Well, that means we have no hydroxyl alkalinity. Our carbon alkalinity is two times whatever our P value is. And the equation to find our bicarbonate alkalinity is going to be our P alkalinity times two, and then we're gonna subtract out our total alkalinity. So again, if you understand these relationships, you can do these, you can understand what's going on, and if the p-alkalinity is one-half the total alkalinity, that means that there's no hydroxyl alkalinity. So that means the pH is below 10.3. There is no bicarbonate alkalinity. So that means the pH is above 8.3. So by process of elimination, that means that entire test is just showing you the carbonate alkalinity. And then the last relationship I'll share with you is if the p-alkalinity is more than one-half the total alkalinity, well, this is probably the 2p minus m that everybody knows about to find carbonate alkalinity. So with that equation, that's where everybody gets the famous 2p minus m that I'm sure you've heard about. And that means two things. That means that we have hydroxyl alkalinity present and we have carbonate alkalinity present. So if we were to take a pH sample, that means our pH would be above 8.3. 
So when you understand these relationships, you understand your tests better and you're able to do better results through your test kit to make better decisions for your customer. The next test that I've received a couple of questions about is the free and total chlorine test. And a lot of us use the DPD method. So a free chlorine test, chlorine in the sample is the combination of hypochlorous acid and the hypochlorite ion. So that will immediately act with the DPD reagent and create a pink color. Now, when chlorine reacts with something else, it's called combined chlorine. And we don't have a combined chlorine test, but we do have a total chlorine test. So that's going to measure both your free and your combined chlorine. Now, in the total chlorine test, both forms can exist in the water sample as total chlorine. So it's going to test for both the free and whatever form the combined is. That might be monochloramine, dichloramine, trichlor. There's so many different derivatives of that. So there's another ingredient in the total test that is not in the free test, and that is iodide. And that will actually allow it to react to iodine. And the iodine and the free chlorine will react with the DPD reagent, and that's what gives you that pink color. So now you know, you wondered what the difference is. Well, chemistry is our friend, but here's a couple things you need to know about this test. A free chlorine test you need to take immediately or it is not a good sample. For those of you that take a sample with you from the place where you collected it and maybe sample it, 10 minutes later, 10 hours later, whatever it is, that's not a good sample for chlorine. Chlorine has to be done right there on the spot immediately. And the reaction time for that is immediately. You don't wait for this to develop. It is as soon as you put the reagents in there, that is your free chlorine reading. Now, as far as the combined chlorine and free chlorine for the total test, that one is typically a wait time. The one we use is three minutes. Again, you have to do that with a fresh sample right there, but you do have to wait a little bit for that reaction to take place to form the iodine. And when that happens, you can now read your total chlorine sample. Now, the question that brought me to this test was somebody was testing and they keep getting a pink or a dark red, and then immediately it will go to a lighter red to almost a yellowy color. I'm willing to bet that you have a large amount of chlorine in your system. And if that is the case, then what you need to do is dilute your sample. One, if it's a cooling tower, you need to fix that pretty quick because it's going to get rid of all that pesky metal that's in the cooling tower. So you might have an overfeed. Maybe it's a bad ORP probe. Maybe a pump is set up a lot higher than you realize that it is. I've even seen where technicians will install their feed pumps too close to the suction side of the system recirculation pump. 
and that will even create a vacuum for your product. So I don't know if you have any of those things going on. Maybe you're testing a pool and it's just got higher chlorine in it, but try diluting your sample and I'm pretty sure that that will go away. So now you know a little bit more about what's going on in your chlorine test, why there's a different free chlorine packet for the total chlorine packet, and you know what it's doing. Now, maybe you have a different halogen. And by the way, the iodine, chlorine, bromine, all of those things are all within the same column. We call those the halogens. So let's say you want to convert a chlorine reading to bromine. Simply multiply the result by 2.25. By knowing the molar ratio of the two, very easy to do. And simply all you do is just take the molecular weight, divide that by the other molecular weight that you're looking for, and it will tell you what that multiplier is that you need. Again, you don't need another test kit for that. So I hope all the great test kit manufacturers don't think that I am trying to reduce their sales. You are learning so much more about your test. Your tests are going to be better tools. The next one I've gotten a couple of questions about is the sulfite test. And folks, as a water treater that's been around for a while, I really thought everybody knew this, but apparently this isn't the case. So this is the iodide-iodate method. So in order for this method to work, here's what it does. So the water sample is brought to an acid form, and then it's titrated with potassium iodide-iodate solution. So the acid releases free iodine, and that reduces to a colorless iodide by the sulfite in the sample. And when all the sulfite is gone, it will then, the iodine will react with the starch, giving you that dark blue color. I'm pretty sure in school or your kids in school have done some sort of iodine starch test. And they can figure out if starch is in something based on if it turns a blue-black color. Folks, that is this test. That is all that is. The key to this test is to make sure that it's cool because where does the starch come from that we put in the test? Well, mostly it comes from potatoes. Well, folks, we don't eat raw potatoes. We cook potatoes, which converts the starch, which is why they taste better, but they don't work better in our test. So if we don't have a room temperature test, we will have an issue where we're cooking the starch and it's not reacting right within the sample. Well, now the cooling aspect brings another issue because just like chlorine, sulfite has to be tested immediately or it's not going to give you a good result. So I think the person that taught me the best in this test is my good friend, Mark Lewis. He has a special sulfite bottle that he keeps in his possession when he goes to test for boilers, and he will allow the sample to run over so it is as full as it possibly can be. There's no airspace in it. That's the key because the sulfite will go after the oxygen within the air. So Mark makes sure there's no airspace in there. And then he has a special cup that goes around them and he'll either pack that with ice or allow water to run over it. And that gets us a nice cool sample. Of course, if we don't have a sample cooler, 
Folks, convince your customer that they need a sample cooler for their boiler. That boiler water is hot and we can get burned. They can get burned. Somebody can get burned. It is a potential liability. Quote them a sample cooler and you will not have to do this procedure. You can test it immediately. So there you go. Not only do you know how to use your sulfide test better, you now know how to use it to sell your next piece of equipment. The next tests we're gonna talk about are your phosphates. And folks, I'm gonna be honest, we are not going to do justice all the phosphates that we have to talk about. I think this is an entire episode in itself. In fact, I did a phosphate episode, episode 46. That's where I actually interviewed people about the SteriPen that we use to convert organic phosphate into an inorganic phosphate. So I'm going to encourage you to go back to episode 46 to pick up the pieces that we just do not have time to talk about. So as far as the phosphate test method, I think it's important for us to realize there's only one phosphate test and it's the orthophosphate test. That means that all the other forms of phosphate need to be converted into the ortho form. Now, as I mentioned, we have organic, we have inorganic phosphates, and in the inorganic form, we typically have the polyphosphates, we have the orthophosphates. So even when it's in the organic form, we have to reduce it down to its ortho state. Now, there are procedures for all of that, depending on what you are trying to do. But the point I'm trying to make is you now have choices that you can make with phosphate. There are two different orthophosphate tests that most likely you are using one or the other. There's the ascorbic acid, which I believe Hawk calls phosphor-3. And this is a method that I think is more widely accepted, but it's got a very low range. I think it's zero to three. Now, most of us run our phosphates a little bit higher than that. And with that, I recommend the molybdivanidate method. And the molybdivanidate method goes up to, I believe, about 40. So just keep in mind that phosphate doesn't mean phosphate. You need to know which species of phosphate it is. You need to know that all of the different species of phosphate that you are looking for have to be converted down into the orthophosphate form. You've got a couple of different options to choose from. And when it comes to what we do as industrial water treaters, we're running a little bit more phosphate than just three parts per million. So if we use the ascorbic acid method, that means we have to do a dilution. Well, folks, I don't know about you, but a dilution is just another term for me that we're going to mess up the sample. We could add either too much or too less of whatever material as we're diluting, and that's gonna cause an issue. With the molybdivanidate method, we can take a test all the way up to 45, and that allows us to get probably a good accurate sampling of how we're running our phosphates in our test. So with that, if you don't understand the phosphate test, you're probably not alone because I found that most water treaters don't understand phosphate. It's probably phosphate followed by alkalinity. So I hope if you want to learn more, you'll listen to episode 46, you'll read your procedures, you'll look at the Hawk Water Analysis Handbook, 
And by the way, if you want a real easy way to find the link that I'm looking at so you can have the Hawk Water Analysis Handbook, you can simply go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash W-A-H for Water Analysis Handbook. Folks, I hope you're looking at your tests a little bit differently. I hope you, without a doubt, are now thinking my tests are a tool for me to make my decisions on, not completing my test is how I complete my service. It just allows you a glimpse inside the system so you can make better information. Know your procedures, know what your tests are doing, know why they work, know what some of the interferers are, and know how to dilute out some of those interferers. When you understand your tests, you will make better decisions for your programs And folks, that to me is elevating the bar of being an industrial water treater. Well, folks, again, I want to thank you for your questions to Scaling Up H2O. Once again, you can get your questions to me by going to our website, scalinguph2o.com, and there will be a pop-up on the right-hand side. You can record your voice. You can do that on your computer microphone. You can do that on your phone. Those have great microphones, and I might even air your voice asking the question. Or maybe you don't want to do that. You can go to our show ideas page and you can type out exactly what your question is. Either way, we will become aware of it and we can do something about it just like we did for the eight questions that we answered today on this special Pinks and Blues episode just about your test. Hello. I just wanted to pop in to remind you that Industrial Water Week will be here before you know it. October 5th through 9th, 2020. Last year was another hit with companies big and small and people from across the world joining in. Don't be left out of the celebration of our noble profession of industrial water treatment. Now is the time to start planning. Folks, as I mentioned at the top of the show, next week is the Association of Water Technologies Virtual Conference. And folks, I've got some super exciting information to announce for you. So exciting, I want to tell you right now, but I cannot tell you right now. When you hear what it is, you are going to know why I'm so excited. So I can't wait to tell you. That's going to be next week. That's going to be the Friday, the ending day of the AWT Virtual Convention. Keep in mind, at the end of each and every day of the convention, you can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang, and we're going to be doing a hangout after the conference where we can meet people, we can get that networking that we're all craving, we can share ideas, we can hold each other accountable to go to the next bar. And you might be thinking, how are we going to host 500 people? Well, folks, we're going to go from everybody in one room, and then we're going to go to smaller breakout rooms. And then at the very end, we're going to have people share what they talked about in the breakout rooms. So you're not only going to get information about your specific breakout room, you're going to hear from the whole group. And this is the way that we are going to end energize what we are taking from this year's convention. 
So I hope to see you there. It's not going to be a regular webinar. So don't think you're just going to be sitting around watching people talk, folks. It's going to be so interactive. It is going to be the perfect thing to cap off the end of the convention each and every day. And then, of course, the convention's over on Friday and everybody's sad. Well, folks, don't be sad. We got Industrial Water Week the next week. So we're going to be celebrating all that week. I will have that convention episode for you next Friday. I look forward to seeing you at scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang at the end of each and every conference night. And folks, be safe out there. I will report my exciting new news next week. Have a great week in the meantime. Scaling Up Nation, on episode 136, I invited four members of the Rising Tide Mastermind to tell the Scaling Up Nation a little bit about being a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind. I asked Connor Parrish to explain what our weekly meeting looks like, and here's what he said. Every week we are are able to meet, and I think it's great that we do it weekly because it keeps us accountable. But every week we meet for an hour and it's very structured that hour. Um, we come in and we check in to see is there anything that we need to follow up on or report to the group from an accountability standpoint that we said we would get done by a certain date. And the nice thing is we, we record that and then follow up each week um, to make sure everyone is achieving what they were supposed to do. If we had reading, one of the things that's nice about this is we uh, have a signed reading for books that it's not too cumbersome if you don't like to read, but I think there's a lot of value um, and the pace is great. So we will discuss any key points from the reading there at the beginning and kind of work on some general you know, housekeeping. And then from there, we really start to dive in uh, to what we call being in the middle, which is where one of the members of the group each week comes with a problem that they want to present. So this starts by that member describing the problem to the group and then indicating, you know, what is the goal that they want to accomplish from, you know, the discussion that's about to ensue. So from there, everyone will then spend maybe 20 minutes or so asking clarifying questions in which everyone is doing exactly that, asking questions and the person in the middle then responds. There's no back and forth dialogue at this point, it's just clarifications. And then from there, once we feel as a group that the problem is understood and all the questions are answered, we move forward to providing recommendations. Each member of the group then you know, gives them insight and some feedback based on what they heard to the person in the middle who finally then kind of compiles all of that advice and says, okay, this is, this is what I'm taking away from the advice of the group. And here's what you can expect from me as far as tackling the problem and hopefully resolving it within the next couple of weeks, depending on the scale of the problem. Well, Nation, there's the secret sauce. That is the format of our meeting. And it's all about getting where we're going faster. But it's also about making sure we're starting out in the right direction. When was the last time you asked yourself what was important to you? And are you doing the things that are going to make those important things happen? Those are the things that we're discussing in the Rising Tide Mastermind. And can you imagine how much more successful you would be if you had a boardroom of people helping you with your issues. 
letting you know what your blind spots are and holding you accountable to get the things done you said were important to you. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to see if the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you. And if it's not, it's okay, but please find a group that is right for you. We are not built to do life alone.